and welcome to Make Good, the podcast about yarn and knitting from Scratch Supply Co. We're recording today in downtown Lebanon, New Hampshire, and we're really excited to be here. I'm Karen. And I'm Jessica. We're going to mix that intro up next week, I think. Ooh. This is our 50th episode, and I think we are gifting ourselves, I might say something different. Surprise! (laughs) Seriously, I'll be surprised. I have no idea what Karen's planning. I probably also don't know what I'll say until it's already come out of my mouth. So it's destined for greatness. Sweet. (laughs) I love that. So before we jump into the topic of the episode, we have a couple of other things we wanted to talk about. Yes. It's episode 50. It's time to clean house. We have some notes for you. I would like to start with referring back to episode 48, where we talked about knitting styles. In our conversation where we brought up left-handed knitting, I think we really created some feelings for people. And I just wanted to clarify the reason why we mentioned lefty knitters, because left-handed or right-handed, you can choose whatever style is most comfortable for you. And I want to say very clearly and plainly that a left-handed knitter who comes to see us will never be told, you're doing it wrong, you must do everything right-handed. Our point was that we encounter frequently left-handed knitters who come in who have been told things like, you can't knit from patterns, you have to rewrite everything and mirror it on paper, you can't read a pattern. That's not true. Right. And they're often being told that by a family member who is right-hand dominant, who doesn't have experience with this, and who is basically asking them to learn a new skill and demonstrate a sort of over-the-top mastery. And it's frustrating for a new knitter in any context. You wouldn't tell a new knitter, redraft this pattern. Right. It's an unreasonable expectation. But we did hear lots of comments from you, and we appreciate that you listened and that you took the time to put together your thoughts and share them with us. And I'm pretty sure I'm hopeful that I saw them and communicated back with everybody. But from the information that we got from all of you, we're planning on doing some more homework and learning some more about the different ways that left-handed knitters knit, including mirror knitting and all sorts of interesting things. And we're going to talk about that on a future episode. But before we do that today, I just wanted to share a resource that was recommended to us by a couple of you. It is a Ravelry group, so it may or may not be an accessible space for everybody. But on Ravelry, there's a group called On the Other Hand, and it's for lefty knitters and crocheters. And it's a great support community with lots of information. So if that is interesting to you, go check it out. Other housekeeping that we have in ways of making information more accessible to you is Karen has been doing some work to our website. (laughs) So we got some feedback from somebody who asked us to, on our website, number the episodes. Mm -hmm. Because when we say something like, we're talking about episode 48, you couldn't just go back and do that. And what I realized was the website service that we were using actually wouldn't let us do that. So anyway, now we have a new website. (laughs) It's very exciting. (laughs) And there's a couple of things that this is also going to let us do. Our new website has like a blog capability. Hooray! Which means that for folks who want to participate in our knit-alongs who are not Instagram users, there is going to be a way now that you can share pictures, which is really great. We didn't have that before. The other thing is that you can leave us a voicemail from the website. There's like a little microphone robot down in the right-hand corner. It looks like a chat module, but it gives you an opportunity to leave us a voicemail. So if you want to leave us a Dear Scratch message, you can do it. Just 
by calling, which feels very fake, but very cool. Feels very fun and kind of retro. <laughs> like you can call and not have stress about it because we're not going to answer the phone. <laughs> it's just another robot. So today's episode is the first in a little mini series that we've decided we're going to do, where we talk about vocabulary terms that you might frequently encounter in your knitting, those words that you've heard them around and you feel like at this point you kind of can't ask anymore. But you still need to know. But you still need to know. And maybe you don't actually know. Maybe you do. And you're going to be like, I knew absolutely everything. And that's great. You get as many points as there are things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I encounter knitting words where via context clues, I'm like, sure, I guess I know what that is. Sometimes I'm very wrong. <laughs> and sometimes I'm right. But we're just going to kind of walk each other through this. And we're doing it thematically because there are so many knitting words. Whoa, there are so many knitting words. So we're going to do it kind of by project family. And because it's knit-along time, we're going to start our vocabulary quiz series with socks. You know, I just learned what a gusset was, like, maybe a year ago. Gusset, A, it's a fun word to say. <laughs> and B, it kind of has nuance to it. It's a very specific thing if you're talking about a bag. It's something kind of different if you're talking about it in a different context. It's got fine distinction depending on how it's being used. I was also that way with raglan. Huh. I thought raglan was just what happened between the neck and the arm of your sweater. I thought that was just raglan for like a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it's fashion. Fashion yeah. styles. Well, here, we're going to start with our socks. All right. So we're going to start. We're going to work our way down. Yeah, we're going to go top down, but we will make reference to toe-up techniques as we get to the different sections. But welcome to Anatomy 101 socks. <laughs> All right, so cuff. Cuffs. So I think that when people hear the word cuff, they maybe most frequently think of like your shirt sleeves or maybe the bottom of your jeans or trousers. And generally, you think of that like in terms of cuffing your sleeves or cuffing the legs of your pants where you're turning them over and like flipping them up. That's a fashion thing I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can have cuff jeans or peg jeans. You know, you're turning your cuffs. In terms of a sock, your cuff is the very top of your socks that hug your ankle or somewhere on your leg, depending on how long your socks are. This can be a ribbed section of your socks. Frequently it is because you want that to be kind of huggy and keep it in place. But sometimes there's no ribbing at the cuff of your sock. It's just like a decorative edge or maybe you have slouchy socks because that's your thing and it just kind of is there. But that's like the top edge. You don't need to fold it over, even though folded fabric is kind of the common association with the term cuffs. Can I tell you a growing up in Ohio story about sock cuffs? Oh, bless. Please do. I was about to say this was the cool thing to do, but in retrospect, I don't think it was. I think it was just <laughs> the thing I was doing. You would wear two different color. You would wear two pairs of socks at a time, Uh huh. two different colors. So like you would have two socks on your right foot and two socks on your left foot. You would reverse which one was on the outside and then you would fold them down. I'm saying you because I would like to think someone other than me was doing this. I have no memory of anyone other than me doing this. I just remember my feet being very uncomfortable during the school day. How old were you? Because you're younger than me. Was this what grade? Early middle elementary school. So like somewhere second, third, fourth grade, maybe. Okay. Because when I was in third or fourth grade, so you were a wee babe younger <laughs> in a building somewhere else. 
We definitely did double socks. Okay. But we didn't cuff. Where I went to school, we slouched. Oh. So you'd have like a purple sock and a white sock and then a white sock and a purple sock pulled over each other. But definitely so there was a number of inches of exposed sock above the other. And then you slouch them and you definitely were rocking them with Keds. I was not rocking them with Keds because I have flat feet. So I was rocking them with saddle shoes. It was a very oh, like contrasty oh, color cute. look. <laughs> <laughs> you had so much color on your feet. That's adorable. <laughs> I think I would do that now. I like socks. so. Except for the bunchy toe thing, you would have to knit yourself or create for yourself a sock dicky. Yes! <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> oh, my winter's about to get wild. Just short little like wristbands, dickies yeah. for your ankles that go on over your socks. It's like a coffee cup cozy. I can crank those out. I mean, they kind of already exist in the form of boot toppers. Like they're definitely a thing. But I think if you call them a sock dicky, you will like it better, for one. Yeah, I've never once made boot toppers, but I would knit a sock dicky. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on from our cuff, I think. Okay, another fashion thing that doesn't generally happen anymore is sock garters. I think some people still wear them. You mm -hmm. can definitely buy them on, like, sock dreams. They definitely still exist. But most people are kind of hoping their socks are going to stay up on their own. So ideally, you want the cuff of your sock to be snug. Yeah however you're constructing it. Sock garters are cute, though. I mean, yes. They're a whole own aesthetic. I think they're cuter now that they're an aesthetic choice and were probably super annoying when they were the only way to keep your socks from sliding down your feet. All right. And then after the cuff of your sock comes the leg of your sock. Mm -hmm. So the leg of your sock is like the body of your sock. It is above your heel and below your cuff, and it may be very long, or it might be like a quarter of an inch. It's just that section that is above the heel turn, but it's not actually the elasticy cuff area. I think that the leg of your sock is like your maximum fun potential because it's like a blank canvas. You can find patterns that have amazing things going on, or you can pick your own vanilla sock pattern and kind of plug in whatever is fun and interesting to you if you're feeling like you're an adventurous knitter. So you can have textured stitches there. You can have cables. You could do bobbles, color work, all sorts of fun things. And that's where you get to show it off because if you're wearing these socks outside where you have to go somewhere and wear shoes, it's not crammed in your shoe. That's your showing off sock area <laughs> for fashion. I always think of the leg of your sock as the part where you get to put the pattern down. But like if you were doing a decorative leg, you would not do that. But mm -hmm. it's the relaxing part because you're like, oh, I can't mess my math up at this point. Sure. I'm making a tube. You're I on love cruise control. Yeah, exactly. So it is a great place to add all kinds of fun things. Mm -hmm. I have socks at home that are store-bought and not handmade, but they have little wiener dogs and hot dog buns. And I love them. And I like to show them off. <laughs> <laughs> can't show off the dogs that are in my shoes, but I can show off the ones on the legs of my sock. Oh, another note about that is that highly textured knitting. Like if you want bobbles on your socks, that's the best place for them because they're not getting squished against your foot inside of your shoe where they will feel lumpy and uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, nobody wants to feel like they're standing on a pebble all day when it's a bobble that you made in an unfortunate place on your sock. Oh, so speaking of feeling like you're standing on a pebble, though, 
I was talking to somebody who has, she's had a couple of surgeries on her feet. The bottom of the soles of her feet are very, very sensitive. And because of that, she feels like she can't wear hand-knit socks. She thinks they're too textured. Ah. She tried flipping them inside out. So it was the stockinette side, and it was a much more comfortable experience for her. And that's kind of assuming, I mean, I don't know, maybe you're making reverse stockinette socks in the first place, but it's just the thought. I would never have thought of that, and it worked great. That's very smart and a great way to deal with sensory issues on your feet. Change up the fabric and see if it's more appealing to you. Okay, now we're getting into the wizardry part. Yeah. Before I knit my first pair of socks, I had big nebulous don't understand it fear around the concept of turning the heel. I didn't understand what that was. Like, it's just making the corner, kind of. Like, that's what people mean when they say turning. Yeah. That phrase made me feel like I can't knit socks because I cannot imagine what that means. So let's talk about heels. I love talking about heels. And I think that you are so far from being alone. I think turning the heel or figuring out the math or whatever the situation is where your sock bends is overwhelming for lots of knitters, whether you are a longtime knitter or you're brand new. Someone's going to correct me. But I feel like the turning the heel action is unique to socks. I can't think of another garment that I knit where that kind of like fiddly back and forth shaping of an area happens. In a sweater, things are kind of slow and gradual and over big expanses, but turning the heel of a sock is kind of fast and an extreme angle change. So I think recently we've started to see top-down sweaters where designers are using short rows at the back of the neck, but that's a relatively last couple of years thing for most designers. The heel turn was really the only, only-ish place that you were encountering short rows before that started to be a common practice. And so that made short rows feel kind of stressful too, because they're happening on this tiny yarn in this tiny area where you're trying to get the numbers to line up. You're kind of trying to be symmetrical in two different ways. You want both sides of your heel to be symmetrical, and you're going to have to make a whole second sock, and you kind of want that to be the same too. You don't want, you know, tidy righty lefty Lucy <laughs> sock-wise, <laughs> uh-huh. right? <laughs> yeah, don't want that. It's a three-dimensional action. Like you might have short rows in a shawl or something, but it's just a big flat expanse. You are creating an extreme curve. Yes. Mm-hmm. See, I forgot about short rows in a shawl because I don't feel any panic associated with short rows in right, a shawl. Right, because it's not like three-dimensional knitting. It's flat fabric. So the heel technically is just the curve or the L-shaped bend in your sock to accommodate the actual physical heel of your foot. Not all socks have heels. Tube socks don't have heels. Tube socks are tubes. What is that face? They don't have heels at any point? No, that's why they're tube socks. It's just a tube, and the only heel involved in it is where your foot goes and makes it bend. But there's no built-in heel in a tube sock. Because it's a tube. (laughs) So tube socks are a thing that exist. But I think that people refer to socks that are not tube socks as tube socks. A long white sock with like stripes at the top of them, that may or may not have a heel in it. But if it has a heel, I think it's not technically a tube sock. I did not know that. Huh. Okay. We're all learning together. (laughs) Okay. So your heel of your sock can be made in many different ways. We are going to touch on a couple of commonly found heel techniques, but heels are not standard or uniform across sock patterns. 
the heel of your sock gets beat up a lot. If these are socks that get worn in your shoes or your boots, that's a high friction area because of how your foot moves inside of your sock. So a lot of times you will find that your hand-knit socks will benefit from reinforcement in that area. And you can provide that in a couple of different ways. You can use yarn that has nylon in it. You can use yarn and hold it double with reinforcing thread, like those little tiny spools of thread that you see sometimes in the yarn shop. Those are for your heels or toes. You can hold your yarn double. You can do preventative darning where you knit an additional patch over that area before it wears thin, or you just can be prepared to repair your socks as necessary. Also, some people use textured stitches to like bulk up the fabric on the heel of their socks, kind of commonly on heel flaps, I think. Some common heel constructions are as follows. There are short row heels where you're just kind of knitting back and forth across half of your stitches. And it's to build up length on that part of the sock so it extends. It juts out a little elbow for your <laughs> foot elbow, which is your heel. I wasn't a biology major. Mm. So the short rows wrap around your heel and it makes your socks fit cozy. There's also heel flap. Heel flaps, I think most commonly, exist in cuff down socks. You'll see short row heels in toe up socks or cuff down. I think it's less frequent that you see heel flaps in toe-up socks. But what a heel flap is, is when you have your leg stitches divided into equal sections. It could be on double-pointed needles or on your circulars using magic loop, whatever. But you need to be able to divide those stitches. And on one half of the stitches, you are going to knit yourself a square or a rectangle, depending on how your foot is shaped and what you like. So you have this like little flap that hangs off the back of the leg of the sock. And then this will be followed by a section of short rows and then picking up of stitches all the way around to get you back into knitting in the round from that weird section of flat knitting. I have seen people will slip every other stitch in like a checkerboard pattern in order to create more durability in the flap. And I don't understand why that works. I don't understand why having a slipped stitch alternating with a knit stitch works, but I think it does. Mm -hmm. Someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's called eye of partridge. Yes. And it's just like cushy. I think having those elongated stitches adds bulk to the fabric, maybe. It helps distribute the friction. Oh, that makes sense. Because if you're slipping your running thread behind the slip stitch. Yeah, that makes sense. Bulk it up. Okay, here's where I learned something fun about heels. Another common heel construction in socks is an afterthought heel. And when I was reading about this, I learned that afterthought heels were not exactly what I thought they were. And we are going to put a link in the show notes to this interweave article that I read. But the term afterthought heel was coined by Elizabeth Zimmerman in her 1971 book, Knitting Without Tears. People were I'm positive doing this before she wrote about it, but she gave it that name. So an afterthought heel is where you knit your sock from cuff to toe or toe to cuff. It doesn't matter what direction, but you knit it to completion. And then the heel section is opened up after your sock is done being knit and stitches are picked up and knit with short rows to create the heel. Afterthought heels, true afterthought heels, don't involve scrap yarn. 
You just knit the whole thing, decide where you want the heel, take your snips, and you make a snip. You cut a thread, a strand of yarn, and then you pick out the stitches across that row. Oof. So that's an afterthought heel in its truest form. What I always thought was an afterthought heel is actually called a peasant heel, where you're knitting, and at some point where you know that's where you want your heel to go, you will knit half of your stitches on a piece of waste yarn so it's easy to pull it out, and then you open it up and do the same thing. But there's a fine distinction that I didn't even know existed. Yeah, wow. I have definitely knit the waste yarn version. And now I'm very curious if anyone out there is a sock cranker, like you're using a sock machine, I am very curious about whether, because those are often afterthought heels, Mm -hmm. whether it's the snip version or the waste yarn version. Kind of neat. I had no idea. Yeah. Whoa. This podcast is the best. We're learning things all the time, too. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Welcome to the Karen's Anxiety Hour. What is a gusset? Help me. Ah, Gussets are easy peasy. So a gusset is the shaping in the foot section of your sock, which is just where it sounds like it would be, the part that covers your foot. It's shaping there to accommodate movement. Not all socks have gussets. If you're knitting toe up and your sock has a gusset, there will be a series of increases as you approach the heel. If you are knitting cuff down, there may be a series of decreases as you move into the foot. Oftentimes, it's to get you from those heel turn numbers back to your original cast-on number if they're like not super long socks that need to accommodate your calf. What this does is it allows for expansion as your foot moves. I have high arches, and I need kind of a lot of gusset in my sock to make them comfortable. In my early sock knitting days, I came across a pattern that had no gusset shaping, and I knit these socks, and I thought they were beautiful, and I was so excited to wear them, and I could not get my foot in them. Oh, no. It was awful. (laughs) It was a big disappointment because I was a fresh sock knitter, open to the possibilities of the sock universe, and I had knit myself an unwearable pair of socks. Yeah. I wasn't defeated by this, but I felt a little let down by myself. (laughs) But I didn't, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I didn't realize how important gussets were to my sock-wearing life when it came to constructing my own socks. Choosing a heel construction technique is based around some very strong preferences because people's heels are shaped wildly differently. And depending on the shape, It can feel very comfortable or it can feel really inside of your shoe. So experiment with different heel constructions. If the heel you've made is just not for you, socks make a lovely gift. That's right. They do. (laughs) The other place people have really strong preferences in the toe. True. And that's because everyone's toes are shaped so differently. (laughs) Some people have adorable little like Flintstone feet where it's just kind of boxy at their toes. And some people's feet kind of taper dramatically. Sometimes your little toes are longer than your big toes. Feet are so different from person to person. Yeah, you may not have even really have spent much time thinking about your feet. But once you start knitting socks for them, you're going to have a whole new relationship with your precious toes. Toe shaping is something that almost all socks have, unless you're talking about like yoga socks where there are no toes or something, (laughs) which really, foot warmer. Those also don't have heels. You have beat the system. 
(laughs) (laughs) But if you are closing the toes of your sock, which I am fairly positive that you're going to do, you are going to either need to be engaging in some increasing if you're knitting toe up or decreasing if you're knitting cuff down to shape the toe area of your sock. There are lots of ways to do this, more ways than you probably had considered. I'm just going to mention a couple, but you can tell us what your favorites are. You can voicemail us to let us know what your favorites are. Isn't that fun? So I think that when people think about what a handmade sock looks like, they often envision a wedge toe. I didn't know this was called a wedge toe. It's called a wedge toe, where the decreases or increases are symmetrical on both sides of the toe box. So like, say you're knitting, cuff down, you get to the end of the foot, you start doing decreases on the right and the left side. So it just kind of tapers to a little square front. Yeah. And then you'll end up with stitches that you'll say there are 16 stitches left. You'll have eight on the top and eight on the bottom, and you will graft them closed. Okay. So that's a wedge toe. A round toe sock has a different type of shaping. You are basically doing decreases. So I think it's more common in cuff down socks. You're doing decreases like you would at the crown of a hat. Every X number of stitches, you'll do a decrease. And in the pictures I saw of round toes, it even kind of gently spirals like the decreases at the crown of a hat. Pretty cute. Never knit one. Can't speak to it personally. (laughs) And to kind of cinch that up, you're not grafting anything. It is like a hat that you use your darning needle or tapestry needle and take your yarn at the end and just like cinch it through those stitches and pull it inside Oh, and secure your stitches however you do. Okay. And then another type of toe shaping is left and right toe. And that seems like what? That's just directions and (laughs) And foot digits. (laughs) The name of the thing that's on your foot. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But left and right toe shaping is asymmetrical decreases, or I suppose increases. So you're just doing that shaping on one side of the toe box of the sock. So if it's your right foot sock, if you're wearing them and looking down at them, you will decrease on the right side to accommodate your little toes moving toward your big toe, and your left foot sock will have left side. So that is creating a distinct, correct sock for each foot that you have because of how the toes are shaped. That feels like that would be a very comfortable option for a lot of people. Unless you have the cute Flintstone feet. Right. All right. So let's talk about the other big sticking point people have which is the grafting. If you are doing a technique that you have to graft the toe, Mm -hmm. which usually means a top-down, cuff-down sock. Yes. That can feel scary also. It sure can. So I mentioned earlier, you would graft a toe in your wedge toe socks. Grafting feels overwhelming. Knitters use all sorts of fun tricks to remember the order of the stitches. But what grafting is, you'll sometimes also see it called kitchener stitch. It's a technique where your stitches are divided in equal numbers. At this point, they're probably on two DPNs, but they might be on just your circular needles if you've knit Magic Loop. But if you were using DPNs and you had three in your live stitches or four you <laughs> monsters, you, you kind of break it down so that your stitches have been moved onto just two. You don't, if you've got, say, eight stitches left, you don't need four needles with two stitches on each. Right. That's too fiddly, unnecessary. Reduce the number of needles. 
but you divide those stitches evenly. And then you use your darning or tapestry needle to basically sew those stitches together in a way that you are recreating knit stitches through a sewn pattern. I'm not going to go into the details of the steps. Right. That's another episode. I do know that Kitchener Stitch is one of those things that there are people who just like detest doing it. I am not one of those people. I find it kind of satisfying personally. I love it. Yeah. But there are people who are like, I will do literally any technique to avoid doing Kitchener Stitch. And that is totally fine. Yeah. You don't have to do it. There are also all kinds of things like if you don't want to have to remember it, there are like tools that have the stages on them. Like there was that project bag we need to get more of where a T-Rex yells the steps of Kitchener Stitch at you. Yep. (laughs) Super cute. People love that. Tandy to have reminders of how to do things. Like it's your sock project bag. It gives you the instructions on the bag. Yes. Keep your socks there. So our extra credit portion of this vocabulary quiz is negative ease. Ah, ease, what does it mean? Right. All right. So ease, as a reminder, if you're a sweater knitter, you've encountered ease probably. It's the degree to which your finished garment is larger, so that would be positive ease, or smaller, which is negative ease, than your body. So in socks that are going to fit your feet, and go into a shoe specifically. Like, I feel like this is less relevant for house socks or slipper socks. Sure. But you want to wear these in a shoe. The standard, I don't know who set this, is that the best ratio for negative ease, it's ideal at about 10% in terms of both circumference and length. Okay, I'm making up math on the spot. We're going to say somebody has a 100 centimeter circumference leg. Sure, I, what? Okay. Yes. And they want their sock to be 90 centimeters. Yes. Or a 10-inch circumference leg, and then they would want their sock to be 9 inches. I'm just trying to think, like, what is a... Easy percentage. Yes. 10% smaller. So shorter than your actual physical foot is, less round. So the reason that you want negative ease in a sock that goes into your shoe is that you want it to hug your foot, unless your personal preference is you like slouchy socks in your shoes, which you might be out there and more power to you. But if you are not a slouchy sock in your shoe person and you want it to hug your foot, that 10% negative ease will make the sock hug your foot. And in addition to being more comfortable for you, it also helps to minimize slippage, which increases friction, which makes your socks wear out faster. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, when your socks get all bunchy in your shoe, you are putting more stress on your fabric. And that's going to lead to threadbare spots more quickly than if your sock was more body con. (laughs) Let's use a a fashion term. It's fashion. Body con sock time. Like if it's more huggy to your foot, it holds up for longer. That makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. I was a little surprised. I understand it and like it seems logical, but I hadn't put a lot of critical thought time into how snug your sock needs to be to your foot for maximum sock life. So now that you have completed the extra credit, you have 100% on our first (laughs) vocabulary quiz. I'm not sure I have 100% on our first vocabulary quiz. Roll with it, Karen. (laughs) Stay with me. 
So this was not an exhaustive list of terms that you encounter in sock knitting, but it's a pretty solid start. So when you're knitting socks, now maybe something that you might have been like, what is that? Now you will know. And if you have other words that you encounter and you're like, what is this? I need someone to dig a little bit for me. Ask us. We'll do it. We're game. Oh, yeah. We're going to do this as a series. It's vocabulary amnesty. All of these things that you're like, (laughs) I've been hearing this word. I feel like I should know what it means. I've been pretending I know what it means. And now ignoring it. Yeah. Now it's too (laughs) late to ask. No, it's not. It's never too late. (laughs) The time is now or in some number of weeks when it occurs to you to send us an email (laughs) or a voicemail. Love that. (laughs) Hey, Karen, what's on your needles? So we're doing the sock knit along. And I just cast on a pair of socks with a self-striping yarn I picked up at India Untangled from Woolens and Nosh. And I'm still working on my Deliciosa by Nora Gon. It's moving very slowly because it is definitely one of those patterns where you are like in the pattern the whole time. It's not repeating cables. It's asymmetrical. Like you have to count every stitch and every row. So it's like I do a couple of rows and then I need I need a break. It's going to be beautiful though. Oh, I'm really excited about it. Did we tell people that we went to visit Michelle from Wollens and Nosh? We put it on our Patreon. So if you're not familiar with her yarn, she does self-striping yarn. Yeah. And so she has this like really gorgeous space that she's just moved into. And we are super excited for her. It's just awesome. What's on your needles, Jessica? (sighs) Socks, socks, blah, blah. But here I have confession time with you, friends. So I had hoped that by today I could be wearing my Cinnabar shawl when we recorded this. I wanted to tell you how fun it was, and I wanted to tell you I was triumphant, and maybe share some pictures on our Instagram. If you follow us on Instagram, you may have noticed that there are no pictures of my Cinnabar (laughs) shawl, and I will let you know that I'm not wearing it right now. There was a brief moment in time where we were barely speaking to one another. (laughs) So I, uh, seriously, though, I have had lots of fun knitting this. Really fun. This is totally my fault and not the pattern. It is my fault and perhaps the fault of my gin and tonics. (laughs) I mostly knit this shawl at night when we were watching some true crime nonsense or who knows what else and have a cocktail, do my knitting. And I discovered as I was ready to start the border section and button this project up that as I looked down into my project bag, I was like, huh. That's a lot of my third skein of dyed-in-the-wool left. Why is there so much left? I didn't knit that much from it. (laughs) And then I thought, huh, I don't think I even wound my third skein of my main color. (laughs) I don't believe that her yardage requirements should be so different than my own knitting experience. Perhaps I should count my stitches. Mm. And I counted. And then I counted again. (laughs) And then again, I counted some more. And I discovered I was verging on 100 stitches short of where I needed to be in this shawl. This gigantic garter and brio shawl. (laughs) I had knit it as deep as it needed to be. Like I'd done Mm -hmm. the correct number of repeats. But what I did not do was knit the double increase at the end of the row for like ever in the brio (laughs) section. So every time I was supposed to increase six stitches across a row, I was increasing four and over a whole pattern. Guess what? That's a lot of stitches. 
So I did some soul searching and I thought I had a lot of fun knitting this, but I'm not knitting it again from the beginning. I have, no. I promised a sweater to a 10-year-old. I have socks. I have other things I need to be knitting in the next month and a half. I'm not re-knitting this cinnabar. It's a shawl. Nobody's going to be like doing a forensic accounting of my stitches when I'm wearing this thing. It's squishy. It's big. It's going to keep me warm. Like, what do I care? I'm just going to keep knitting. So I am in the process of trying to stitch through the rest of my dyed in the wool. And when I get down to the end of that skein, it will magically be border time. I'm not even counting the stitches. I will read the pattern, get the basic feel of the border, and finish the shawl and wear it. (laughs) It's going to be exciting. Oh, it's going to be super exciting because I went through like an emotional (laughs) journey in the forest trying to figure out what I had done. And I had done something dumb that was like totally my own fault for not paying attention. But also, it's a shawl. It doesn't really matter that much because I will be happy with the end result. And my own personal happiness is really what matters (laughs) here. (laughs) Being done will make me happy. Yeah. So anyways, that's what's on my needles. (laughs) Are you ready for a letter? Yes, 100%. This week's letter comes from Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Since I've started listening to you, I have developed sweater envy but I'm really scared to take on something too aggressive for my first sweater. I have a short, fluffy body and prefer boxy construction in my store-bought sweaters. How do you choose the sweater patterns you knit now? Or perhaps more appropriately, how did you choose the sweaters you knit when the process was new to you? That's a great question, Lisa. So, first of all, try not to think of your sweater projects as aggressive. (laughs) It will make it adversarial from the start. Don't fight with your sweaters. What I would recommend is spend some time thinking about what you want from a sweater. You've already identified that you like boxy construction. Excellent. That's great. If that's something that you feel good in and it's comfortable and you like that aesthetic, start looking for knitting patterns that have that shape. It's not just store-bought sweaters that get to have all the boxy shape fun. There are plenty of hand knits that have a boxy construction. And I think that boxy construction with drop shoulder, so basically like the whole body of your sweater is like a big square. There are lots of options for necklines, and then you just kind of pick up the stitches for the sleeves and knit your sleeves down to whatever length is comfortable for you. That's a great place to start with your sweaters. So when I am looking for sweater patterns, personally, I tend to source my patterns on Ravelry, and I heavily take advantage of the filter system. In the advanced search area of the pattern section, you can select for construction, you can select for fabric attributes, you can get down to like, what does the neckline look like? How are the sleeves shaped? Is it top down or bottom up? And those are things that will help you get rid of the distracting extraneous patterns where you're like, oh, but that's beautiful and look at that too. And I could knit that because it's appealing eye candy, but really it's not necessarily what you want to be knitting or wearing because I feel like the siren song of new patterns or beautiful color work or whatever is sometimes distracting from our goals in selecting a project. Filter them out. 
Select one color if you don't want to do color work. That's an option. It will get rid of all of the fun fair aisle or stripes or whatever and really make your selection process easier. When knitting was new to me, Ravelry did not yet exist. And finding patterns to knit was what is in the plastic sleeve of the three-ring binder at the yarn shop I'm going to. Or at some point it became what's on knitty.com. I had no knitter friends. I had no one to help me because it hadn't even occurred to me to ask the people at my yarn shop that I was going to because like that level of community was just not existing in that physical space at that time. I didn't ask for help. I just like it was transactional only. So I knit some bad sweaters. Oh, bad sweaters are inevitable. They just happen. They felt super inevitable here because I was like, great, I have three choices. I don't know how to make a sweater fit my body and I don't know what will look or feel good. I guess that picture looks good on that person. I'll knit that one. And whoo, <laughs> not good. I knit a number of sweaters that I never wore that got given to Goodwill, that got frogged. But I feel like there's more opportunity to make better choices for yourself now than there was 20 years ago. This is totally just me thinking this, but I would say, you know, if it's your very first sweater, tackle one new thing at a time if you're feeling a little overwhelmed. So maybe not color work your first time because at that point you have more than one string you have to deal with while you're turning this thing around and around and around. The other really nice thing about Ravelry is the rating system. Over on the right-hand side, if Ravelry is accessible to you, over on the right-hand side of the pattern listing, there are stars and they are user ratings, not the designer's rating. Because I think sometimes designers think their pattern is easier than it is. And so they'll be like, oh yeah, it's very simple. You just do this one thing over and over. And like, sure. But it's very helpful to have this sort of aggregated rating that all of the people who have made that pattern before, they could be like, actually, the thing that happened around the arms was really complicated. It took me like four tries to figure it out. That would be helpful information for you to have going into this project. Yeah, I think my best advice to you is take your favorite sweaters, lay them out on a table or your bed or somewhere and look at them all and identify what they have in common shape wise construction-wise, like find the things that you like best about them that you keep purchasing over and over for yourself and use those things to inform your search of patterns because then you will be able to start out with a sweater that you were nearly guaranteed success with. I think that might be it for us this week. You should visit our new website (laughs) and leave us a voicemail just to say hi because that'll be fun. (laughs) Is there some way they can leave pictures of dogs over voicemail? No, I think that's an email thing, social media. You can listen to us from the website or from kind of anywhere else. Any podcast listening service. Rate and review us. Tell your friends. It helps more knitters find us. You can follow us on Instagram at MakeGoodPod. And if you're participating in the Knit Along, that's where almost all of the participation is going to happen. If you are a non-Instagram user, you can do it on the website now, MakeGoodPod.com. Make sure that you are following the hashtag, hashtag make good socks, and using that if you're participating in the knit along too. But that's how you see everyone else's sock projects and give them little hearts and comment and show them some love and cheer them on with their fantastic footwear. And we have a Patreon now. We try to post fun things, pictures and stories and fun stuff. It's what allows us to keep doing this every week and promise you that we will never bring in advertising. Because blah, advertising. (laughs) 
Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.